Let's go! New fish bites! It's the pre-Thanksgiving episode of our Miami Marlins podcast, and I, Eli Sussman, am always thankful for your support. Please subscribe to Fish Stripes on any pod provider to be the first to hear our new stuff and to browse all the audio coverage from 2019. We're coming up on nearly 100 total episodes from my staff and contributors this year. A lot of those interviews and analysis have aged really well, even if you didn't catch them the first time around. More cool plans on tap for the final month of the year as well. Stay tuned for that. For the second straight week, I'm spending most of this episode just like you as a listener. That's because Aram Layton landed an interview with Blue Jays outfield prospect and 2019 Midwest League home run champion, Griffin Conine. That's right, Conine. He's the son of Mr. Marlin himself, Jeff Conine. You will absolutely want to listen to his memories of growing up in a Marlins family and the developments in his own professional career. This guy is legit. Full season ball this past year, but an early round pick who had a standout career at Duke University. He's he's on a path to eventually join his father as a future big gligger, even if it's not with the Marlins. But he has great rapport with Aram, and it's a really interesting interview, I think, that will give you a different side of what could be a future impact player at the highest level. But first, I need to address the $22 million elephant on the payroll, Wei Inchen. On Wednesday, the Marlins finally bit the bullet on Chen. I've been asking for this for a number of months now, but better late than never. Um, he's not going to be on the team for 2020. DFA'd, and by the time you listen to this, he might be already officially released from the team and into free agency uh, with one year remaining on what was originally an $80 million deal. But they still owe him every cent that he was guaranteed for 2020. They had to do it now to make room on their 40-man roster to protect some key prospects from the upcoming Rule 5 draft. So they finally got it done. All told, in his four seasons with the Marlins, a 5.10 earned run average of 4.54 fielder independent pitching, contributing 2.2 wins above replacement, according to fan graphs, and that's in 358 innings pitched. This, I thought, would be the appropriate time to rewind and look at why he joined the Marlins in the first place and to wonder what his legacy is going to be with the team because I don't want to overreact to that final 2019 season that wasn't representative of who he was. This is a guy that had originally been pitching in Korea and had had a lot of success there, signed by the Baltimore Orioles and pitched there for four seasons as a really steady mid-rotation pitcher, a guy that's a really good number three, or maybe even uh, a decent number two on some teams. He was that good. He had a 3.72 ERA, a 4.14 FIP with the Orioles, averaging about 177 innings per season. That's really solid. So the projection was, coming over to the National League, he may even improve on those a little bit. He was 30 years old, which is a number that I, I guess a lot of people circle as the beginning of a player's decline, but that's not always accurate. Chen was not someone that ever really relied all that much on his physical talent and extraordinary raw stuff. He had an average fastball about 92, 92 and a half with the Orioles, which was at that time pretty much exactly average for a starting pitcher. A couple breaking balls, but nothing too filthy. About a league average strikeout rate for a starting pitcher. He got by by throwing a lot of strikes. He movement on his fastball, his four-seamer, it was in terms of both the vertical movement going up and down and the horizontal from side to side. He had above average movement on his four-seamer that made it difficult to square up. And I think that was a big key for him in being as successful as he was with the Orioles. The Marlins, in order to outbid other teams, they gave him a five-year deal, which if you look at all the pitchers since then, that is pretty much unheard of for someone that is not a true top-of-the-rotation swing-and-miss guy. So teams have learned from that mistake since then to commit too long to this player. But that being said, I mean, he projected as somebody that you could see aging somewhat gracefully because he never relied on the fastball velocity all that much. And as it would turn out, even with an injury in the middle of his Marlins tenure to his elbow, his velocity did not drop off all that much after changing teams. Averaged about 91 
miles per hour. Uh, some adjustments that he did make, he did cut back on his sinker, but that was already like the weakest pitch in his repertoire if you look back at his final Orioles season. So he cut out something that was already holding him back. And I mean, everything else though, it just did not click the same way. One particular thing that I've noticed now in hindsight is that the movement on that fastball that made his four-seamer really effective, um, for whatever reason, he, he was not throwing that pitch quite the same with the Marlins. It did not move as much as it used to in either direction. Perhaps that made it easier for hitters to get their bat on. That, that may be a reason why hitters did not chase outside the strike zone as often as they used to when he was with the Orioles early in his career. He had... Uh, a handful of really amazing starts, and um, I actually put together an article, you can find it on fishstripes.com, that has the highlights from what are his seven strongest Marlins games, according to game score. one of those being seven no-hit innings against the Mariners, that he was only removed from the game due to an inefficient pitch count. 3-2 to Motter, in the air, back behind third, Dietrich is there, and he's got it. And Wei-In Chen has thrown seven no-hit innings here in Seattle. When he was at his best, though, uh, for those other top performances, and even ones where the results didn't quite measure up, he was relatively efficient with his pitches. And that you know, that did spare the bullpen somewhat. Uh, the tune changed a little bit in 2018. He was managed differently coming back from those elbow in- in- issues in 2018. Don Mattingly did not trust him to go as deep into games. He was rarely allowed to pitch the third time through a lineup. Um, so that removed what I thought was the perhaps like the biggest asset that he had to offer was his ability to eat innings. That injury really changed all of that. And to this date, he still has not had surgery on the elbow. I'll be curious to see if that happens moving forward and if that would change anything for him realistically, that Marlins core was probably never going to reach a true contender status because they did not have those impact players waiting in the wings. But that has nothing to do with Chen. It's not his fault that they had shortcomings on the player development side. As I look back on it, the best theory that I have really for why Chen didn't work out for the Marlins, aside from the obvious, the injury, and injuries happen to starting pitchers after a certain amount of workload that's often inevitable, Aside from the injury excuse, I would say that he was impacted more by the change in baseballs than most other pitchers were. Um, What I mean by that is we've seen it now more than ever this past season how uh, evidence showing that baseballs are produced differently for MLB than they used to be in such a way that's allowing the ball to travel farther. It's changing the way the seams on the baseball are stitched and how pitchers can grip those balls. And the difference in his fastball movement may have something to do with that, where um, I think it was in 2016, the second half of the season, that data suggests that's when the consistency of the baseballs and some of their characteristics started to change. So maybe he, for whatever reason, him in particular, um, that new baseball affected the way that his pitch was moving and made it more easier to square up. Uh, more importantly, about the impact of the bat on the ball. Now that baseballs are traveling further, Chen was never a guy that missed a whole lot of bats and got strikeouts. He utilized balls in play, and he always skewed more towards being a fly ball pitcher than a ground ball pitcher. So for years, he had this perception of what it meant to allow safe contact, contact that would stay in the ballpark and was playable for his teammates. But as the ball changed and it's traveling further, all of a sudden, it makes him have to reassess his entire strategy in pitch mix because the ball that used to be an out to, to the warning track or to the wall is now going over the wall and costing his team. My biggest takeaway from the Chen situation is that it should not deter the Marlins from making big free agent investments in the near future. He was the wrong guy at the wrong time, given the wrong contract, but generally speaking, you need outside help to put together a championship team. It's not going to be 100% homegrown. It never has been. Uh, The most recent World Series champion, the Nationals, are a great example of that. But as are several champions right before then, and the key contenders as we head into 2020, 
you need to invest to put together a great team. The Marlins are in a situation where their revenue should be going up in the near future to justify those type of expenditures. And I think most importantly, the fans should still be demanding that this team try to put together the best product possible. You need to take risks, and nobody gets them all right in this situation. Uh, The Marlins, under this new ownership and front office, haven't been fully tested in these situations. Be prepared. There will be other Chens in the Marlins' future, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And now, a Fish Stripes exclusive. Here is Aram Layden interviewing Blue Jays outfield prospect, a Duke University product with Mr. Marlin Bloodlines, Griffin Conine. Fish Bites Podcast. It's Aram Layton. I'm back. I got Griffin Conine with me. Griffin, we've talked about this for a while, about doing this. Uh, second round pick for the Blue Jays, son of Jeff Conine. If you didn't know, um, I know you love hearing that all the time. I'm sure you're not sick of that one. But Griff, thanks for taking the time to hop on. Absolutely, man. It's been a long time in the works. Never could find a time, but finally, <laughs> finally made the time. Yeah, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, son of Jeff, I have to start there. That literally was your nickname at Duke, right? Yeah, it still is uh, in the group me that we still have going from uh, from last year, from my junior year. Son of. <laughs> is it? Are you sick of it yet? Nah, I, I come, I've been embracing it lately. You know, I think I got <laughs> sick of it for the first couple years in college, and then finally, you know, I was just like, let's just roll with it. Let's make it the let's make it the group me nickname. Let's just embrace it. I had to mention it, though, of course, because this is a Marlins uh, podcast, Marlins site, and, of course, your dad is a Marlins legend. Uh, unfortunately, you did not get drafted to the Fish. You went second round to the Jays a couple years ago, um, and now you just finished your first full season, sort of full season, uh, in the minor leagues. You tore it up, absolutely tore it up, knocked, led the league in home runs with everybody else getting a 50-game head start. What was this season like for you so far? You know, you started in Instructs, which you said you can talk about a little bit. was pretty crazy. And then you get to single A and absolutely mash the ball and lead the league in home runs with starting 50 games late. Leading into it, how was Instructs and what kind of experience was that for you? Yeah, so it was um, ex- so they, you go to spring training and then everyone breaks uh, on April, you know, April first or whatever. They go to their teams, whether it's you know the big league club, Triple A, Double A. Everyone kind of gets sent off wherever they're going, and then you got this group that's left back at uh, at the complex, and they go to extended spring training. So these are, I mean, it's a mixed bag, man. It's it's everyone from you know a guy that's rehabbing. A lot of big league guys were there just rehabbing. Um, there's you know Triple A guys, Double A guys. Uh, a lot of young, you know, Dominican Latin guys that are um, either they're just not ready for a full season team, or they're um, a lot of them are being prepped to go to like the short season, which is uh, Bluefield or Vancouver, uh, where I was last year. So you got, I mean, you just got all kinds of people, um, talent wise, that are just a huge range. So we're, um, I mean, there was only I think five or six uh, English speaking guys as far as um, you know non big league or rehab guys that were just. Um, so it was, you know, there's 60, 50, 60 Spanish speakers. And then you got this group of like six or seven of us. That was, uh, it was me. And then, um, there was like four or five other guys that were either ended up going to Vancouver or Bluefield, um, that we just had this little group that, uh, you know, we're, we're all English speakers. And then we were just crazily outnumbered. And that must've been a very like unique circumstance for you because you were going into the season expecting to you know, probably start in low A ball and go from there. And uh, having to start your season there in such a unique situation, did that kind of give you a chip on your shoulder? Did you kind of have a little bit, were you hungrier going into that baseball season? Now, once you finally were able to go and get after it, obviously you came out swinging and uh, had a lot of success, but were you chomping at the bit to finally get your season started after having to serve those 50 games in uh, extended spring training? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it was uh, at the same time, you know, it was as bad as it was. It was equally as good just because I was able to uh, there was definitely some swing surgery, so to speak, that needed to go down. Uh, you know, obviously disappointing first year in Vancouver, um, kind of really the only adversity I'd felt since uh, freshman year in college. Um, you know, not playing well. And uh, they, they really stress your first year in pro ball. Um, not they don't stress it, I should say. It's, it's not that important. You know, you're adjusting. You got the wood bats now from college. Um, a lot of factors going into it. You know, you're playing every day. So um, they kind of don't, you know, they take it with a grain of salt. Um, but, you know, the, the, the second year, there's kind of no excuses. You know, you're adjusted. Um, hopefully you got your bats figured out. Uh, so second year, you know, is an important one as far as making a statement. And um, I think definitely I was, I was a little nervous and glad I had this kind of chunk of time to just focus on uh, some things I wanted to change in, in the swing and um, kind of getting ready. Have, a, have an extra period of time to just uh, really individualize because, you know, spring training, there's so many guys there that um, there's just not enough coaches to, to really have individual work getting done. Um, so it's more of a, you know, hopefully you worked in the offseason, you got yourself ready because spring training is more just uh, kind of fine tuning. You know, there's no real adjustments that can be made at that point. You know, you're kind of just rolling with whatever you got for the upcoming season and, and hopefully you're in a good spot. Um, and I'm I'm starting here. Sorry to interrupt you real quick. I'll let you go back. But um, I wanted to make sure, like, we're going to talk about all the crazy things that led up into your baseball career. I kind of want to start from now and go backwards because of what, everything that's happened recently and, and how good of a season you had and uh, all the drama from getting drafted to where you are now. But uh, I obviously want to talk to you about uh, experiencing your dad being in the locker room during those times and your whole experience with baseball, but still focusing on this season now. You're hoping to, what, start the season now in high A ball in Dunedin? And how are, how are you expecting that? We know the Florida State League is probably the most loaded pitching league in the entire uh, minor leagues, probably. And if you can hit high A ball there, then that's pretty much the big learning curve. So are you geared up? Are you a little nervous, a little bit of both, getting ready for high A ball? Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, this is the first, this will be the first year that um, kind of I can uh, experience the, all the uh, excitement that comes with the, you know, breaking on April 1st, you know, that's something I haven't really gotten to do yet. You know, I've started the middle of the year in Vancouver and then last year kind of started in the same around, around the same time, you know, in June. So this is the first time that, you know, I'll be rolling straight from spring training uh, into the season. And, um, you know, like you said, high A's, uh, ridiculous ridiculous pitching league um and it's just you know in every way too it's just the, the the prospects but also um for my buddies that have played there apparently the fields are just ridiculous um as far as ball flight for hitters is just terrible you know i'm hearing that you know we have all this trackman stuff and they're saying you know i hit this this exit velo with this launch angle which would normally equate to an easy homer and my buddies are saying yeah the, the outfielder went back two steps and made an easy catch um, so you never, never like to hear that stuff, but at the same time, you know, I feel like once you, it's weird cause it's, it's, it's single A still, but at the same time, you know, once you get past this level of, of advanced day, um, it's kind of like you're on a fast track if you have success there, uh, early on. So definitely excited, definitely, um, you know, a bit anxious to get started. And now you're going to have your first full season, which is exciting too. And uh, do you have, do you, is it within the realm of possibility? Are you hoping to finish out this year in double A? Absolutely. You know, I think, uh, hopefully, you know, in my mind, I uh, really would love to get up there, you know, by the, by summertime, you know, which is, uh, definitely, there's a, a lot of factors that go into that. But, um, as far as, you know, if you come out well and, and play well early on and, um, mm -hmm. especially in a league like that, if you can make a statement early, I think, um, especially with being in the, in the Blue Jays organization, they got no problems, you know, moving guys, especially outfielders at this time. So um, definitely hoping to get to New Hampshire as soon as I can and, and kind of go from there. So I want to talk about getting to the Blue Jays, right? Getting drafted, that whole process there. You, you talked about struggling your freshman year and you struggled to see some consistent playing time, didn't hit too well, and then you broke out your sophomore year really put yourself on the map and then you go to Katuit and the Cape Cod League and you win pro prospect of the year and tore it up there where I actually broadcasted this past summer and 
great place. Love the Kettleers. Can't talk about them enough. And you really use that as a springboard, right? To just put yourself on the map. And Katuit, uh, obviously a great place to play. The Cape Cod League is, they say, pretty much almost like a minor league type of competition. It's as close as you're going to get to anything like that in college. And how did you really shift gears from freshman year? You really struggled. And sophomore year, just breaking out and keeping it rolling into the Cape. Uh, yeah, that's that's easy right there. It's just the Northwoods League. You know, that was it. That was um, I go up to this league in, in Wisconsin, kind of in the middle of the nowhere, in middle of nowhere. Um, and it's just it was real laid back. You know, Cape is just there's scouts everywhere, and you know it could be it could have a lot of pressure coming with it. Um, just knowing that you know it's the Cape. You know, it's a lot a lot of a lot of uh, anxiety comes with just the name of the league itself, and knowing that you know it's kind of the the goat of all college baseball leagues. Um, and then Northwoods is kind of like the second tier league that uh, it's just you know there's good players, but um, definitely a, a gap in in between the Northwoods and the Cape. And it was really just a time where the coaches were super chill. Um, I played you know pretty much every day, and um, they kind of just let me go. They let all their players go. Really, it's 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 about just kind of finding. Uh, it's a lot of guys that just need reps, you know. That's that's why I got sent there. It's it's the longest summer league that, you know, Cape is 40, 45 or 50 games and this one's 80 or 72 or something like that. So I got there a little late uh cuz we had a good run in in uh in the postseason um at Duke, but uh yeah, I I guess just once I got up there by that time I wasn't playing at all at Duke. I I sucked. So I was just uh <laughs> I was kind of just already pumped um, you know, obviously it was cool to be a part of the regional and um uh, see, you know, the things we could do. But uh, at the same time, you know, I wasn't playing, wasn't really a part of it because I wasn't, you know, contributing at all. So I was, in my mind, kind of gearing up for this summer that I thought, you know, would kind of change things for me and um, definitely was excited to get up there and uh, start making some adjustments. So you, there were two times in college, you said you sucked. I think that might be a little extreme, but uh, if anyone, as someone who played with you and has known you for a long time, you're as hard on yourself as, as anybody I've ever met, but I was the same way. Uh, but the thing with freshman year, you hit about 200. Yeah, you struggled. And then maybe the only other time you really struggled was after the Cape, right? Yeah. The beginning of your junior year, which is the funny thing because everyone's expecting you to come out and be this, this superstar, right? Like you were in the Cape and like you were your sophomore year and you really struggled in the beginning of your junior year. Uh, do you think any of that had to do with the pressure you had? I think like after you tore it up on the Cape, your name starts popping up everywhere. I remember uh, I was, I was with you, I think, and we were bowling and all of a sudden I pops up on my phone, like top 10 college prospects for the draft. And there's a picture of you. And I'm like, Oh shit, Griff, look there, there you are. Um, and you know, you're popping up everywhere. You went from this guy that's not even playing at Duke to now, you're on MLB.com and you're getting tweeted about and you search your name and there's tweets all about you, all that kind of stuff. Did that affect you at all? How did you handle that? And uh, did that play into a little bit of the pressing in the beginning of the junior year? Um, it's hard to say, you know, I think, uh, I don't really think it did. You know, the easy answer is to be like, yeah, man, I was just crumbling from the pressure and all that. And uh, that's just the easy answer, I think, because, you know, it's, that happens to people, but I, I really honestly don't think that was it. I think it was just, um, you know, like you said, I'm hard on myself. And I think I was just trying to um, not even play to impress others, but just kind of play up to my own expectations of myself. And um, what came with that was just uh, these ridiculous out of control swings that like this approach that um, that just didn't work. You know, it could never be sustainable. There'd be games where, you know, it would all link up and, yeah, I'd crush, crush a couple balls, but then, you know, I'd go a week before I hit a ball hard again. Um, and I think it was just uh, – it got out of control, man. I think I was, I was trying to hit balls 500 feet and, and you know, uh, just kind of do these crazy impressive things that, uh, that just don't go along with a consistent approach. And uh, that led to, you know, a big struggle and a ton of strikeouts. Do you think there, there was, like, a pressure to be the power guy? Because you're obviously – you hit – was it seven home runs in the Cape? Uh, 11, including playoffs. Holy crap. I'm sorry for sure changing you. Uh, 11 home runs in the Cape, right? And you hit a lot your sophomore year, and most of them are tape measure shots. So, took a runner off the base pass. There he goes. There goes Loper Fido. It will be a moot 
points. This a moon shot from Konai. Majestic first round power on display from the Duke right fielder. Was there a little bit of a pressure on you to like be that power guy? Do you think that's why you were swinging out of your shoes all this time? And do you feel like you had to live up to this like expectation of just hitting nukes? Yeah, in a way, you know, and also I just, I freaking love hitting nukes. You know, who doesn't? That's, that's who I am. That's uh, who I've always been after, after that freshman year. Um, and it's just like, you know, that's the most fun thing to do, in, in my opinion, in baseball. Um, when some guys, you know, some guys there, nukes, or some guys love stealing bags. You know, I played with those guys in pro ball um, that are just like, that's like, that's where they get their rush, you know, is, is from, is they're, they're speed guys and they love stealing bags. And that's kind of where I get my rush from is just, is, is hitting bombs. And uh, I think I just, you know, I was chasing that more than I should have, you know, because hits are good too, man. Hits are good. And singles are fine, and I think I just kind of overlooked that and um, just was kind of chasing this extreme high when there's plenty of other good things that can come from just, uh, you know, making contact consistently and hitting balls hard. And I think I kind of was immature in, the, in that sense, you know, definitely that junior year. Yeah, because the singles and the doubles, those translate. And uh, so you felt like – I think that's a – I want to see your take on this too as a power hitter yourself – in baseball, you know, the big – I feel like the old guy criticism is like, oh, there's no pure hitters anymore. They're all all or nothing, you know, big swings and all that stuff. And uh, you kind of confess to having that approach a little bit too. But when you look at the major leagues now, I mean, you still have some guys that will hit for average and power. But strikeouts are at an all-time high. Uh, home runs are also at an all-time high. Do you think that's become kind of the approach of the modern-day big leaguer? Yeah, I think what comes with uh, with these freak pitchers that are starting to become the norm now that all these guys that are just, you know, starters now that are that are sitting, you know, 98, 99 uh, into the into the sixth, seventh, eighth inning. Um, you got to swing hard, man. You do. You just you can't have a have a contact kind of um, oriented approach. You definitely, you know, a short swing is uh, what's going to work. But as far as, you know, you got to you got you to gotta swing hard if you want to hit hard. Um, and that's just uh kind of the way the game's going and, and all these prospects that are coming up now that are just, uh, it, it seems like they get better every year. So I think um, not even, it doesn't even necessarily boil down to approach or guys trying to hit homers as far as just um, the pitchers, man, are just, they have such wipeout stuff that, uh, that you see in the strikeouts go way up. And then obviously, you know, um, homers are definitely becoming more of a, uh, more of a factor just because uh, there's, there's, um, you know, it, it's easier to kind of score runs on one swing rather than trying to string together, you know, four or five hits against a guy like Garrett Cole. You know, you, you can get three runs on one swing, and um, that's kind of become uh, the biggest factor these days. Well, another factor is the juice baseballs, right? I mean, we've seen a lot talk, a lot of talk about that. Uh, at first, the MLB denied it. Now they're saying, okay, there might be some differences to the baseballs, but, like, it's pretty obvious that there's some differences with the baseballs. Justin Verlander... Uh, pretty much was willing to stake his life on the fact that there's a difference with the baseballs. You have an experience with, because the minor league baseballs are different. So you're, you're not using those professional MLB baseballs. Uh, and you had an experience going from the minor league balls to the big league balls, right? And you were able to tell a little bit of a difference there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, the minor league ball is always different. Um, it's been triple A and, and big leagues have the same one. They, they use the big league ball in triple A. Um, and I hear, I think this next year they're, they're moving it down to double A. So now the double A will use uh, the big league balls as well, I think is, is, um, what's going to happen. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you expect, you know, that we, we knew they use different balls. Um, obviously everything's just worse in the minor leagues. That's just the fact of it. Uh, the balls are, you know, not as finely tuned. They're, they're not as good. Um, but yeah, I don't think we expected, uh, as drastic as a change as we, we experienced in Bowling Green. You know, they had these big league balls out there for batting practice. Uh, for whatever reason, that was the only only team that did that, um, the Tampa Bay Rays org. And, uh, yeah, you, you saw these, you know, these uh, this five, six second baseman, you know, out of uh, Venezuela that's got uh, one homer on the air and he was putting balls, you know, 50 feet over the fence. And um, then you got other guys that are, you know, a little bit bigger that are hitting balls, you know, off the end or getting jammed and, and they're going 20 feet over the fence. Um, so... It was pretty crazy, man. It was it was probably the most fun we had during VP all year because I mean we we must have hit fifty, sixty balls out. 
as a team, which is uh, just ridiculous. Which, what's your take on that? Like, I, I'm very torn on it because, you know, people like to see offense, baseball, and, you know, needs the viewership and what's better than seeing a home run. But at the same time, a guy like you, you could probably hit like a plastic baseball out of the yard. And now you're having guys that are not really home run hitters having opportunities to put the ball out just as frequently as you, because at the end of the day, you put it 50 rows back and the five foot six guy puts a 10 rows back. They still count the same. Uh, so what's your take on that? And do you, would you prefer the baseballs to go back to how they were? Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the, the juice balls, you'd think, oh, like, you know, power guys are going to have a field day. But uh, they actually, you know, they favor, if you think about it, they favor the, the contact guys even more because these are guys that, you know, they might hit a, a fly, a deep fly ball that they square up, you know, because these guys are generally they're better at getting the ball in the barrel, you know, more consistently than, than uh, raw power guys are. Um, so now these guys that are, you know, used to hitting 10, 15 a year are now putting out 30 just because because uh, of their barrel control, their barrel awareness, their ability to hit fly balls and um, kind of just uh, hit these juice balls in the barrel that are going 30 feet farther than they should. Um, whereas me, you know, I'm finding less barrel maybe than, than the average contact guy. But when I do, you know, it's it's going way out. And even that's even true with the, with the crappy minor league balls. So I, I think it would affect me not really at all. As far as, um, you know, they'll, they'll, you definitely will see some balls that are, you know, I, I could get jammed on and it'll end up going out. But I think that's minimal. And I think it'd be as far as like me personally, uh, I, I'd rather go back to the crappy balls where it's like, you know, I, I stand out a little bit more instead of all these guys that are now able to hit, you know, 30, 35 homers that aren't supposed to, you know. Uh, you and all the pitchers probably agree on that one. I know Verlander was was furious at the all-star game and just going right at the MLB for how they've handled that whole situation. But it'll be interesting to see how they do it going forward. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be more studies about how it affects everything. But when you got guys like Eugenio Suarez hitting over 50 home runs, it just, I, it really makes me rethink what a good season is. You know, is 20 home runs impressive anymore? Is 30 home runs impressive anymore? It's all that kind of stuff that, that really, adjust the way we look at all of the statistics and stuff like that but for you now going into a ball uh, what are your goals this year um, and then after this I want to get back into like childhood with your dad and all that stuff because there's some really funny stories back in there but to wrap up the the recent stuff what's in the future stuff what's your goal going into a ball this year obviously cut down on the strikeouts that shouldn't be too hard. You struck out a lot this year, but what else? Like, what else do you are you focusing on? <laughs> yeah, man, I had ridiculous amount of strikeouts. Wow, <laughs> it was like I don't even know. Last time it I was checked, crazy. I used to divide it. I used to like check the percentage like every couple weeks and just hope it would go down. But I think at one point you were at like forty percent. Yeah, let's see. It finished. It was like one twenty and three hundred around there so whatever that that's so you know, that's so, about 40 right there so step one improve that what else um dude you know that's really that's one of the good things is uh all that's kind of the, the biggest thing you know i think everything else will i you know i love the way that my home run splits were kind of like left field they're all even it was like seven mm -hmm. seven and eight or something like that um and left center lefties. and right and yeah not not really any real problems with lefties you know the probably biggest thing is just uh um, the righty changeup, man. Righty changeups is one of the biggest things that's uh, difficult. I mean, that's that's for everyone. That's not just you know, it's not unique to me. Um, lefties never have hit uh, righty changeups well. Um, yeah, but it just goes into a approach and um, definitely some swing thing. I had such like a a big swing last year, which is uh, I always have. You know, I always have, and I, I think I'm never gonna never gonna be a low strikeout guy. That's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I mean, 40%. Yeah, that's just uh, – well, I guess if, if you include the walks, because there's like 40 walks, so it was probably close to like 30, 35 or whatever, but um, that's that's just – you know, that's not going to give you success, especially going in a, into a league where, um, you know, Midwest League was pretty good pitching. You know, I think it was – there was only like five or six guys that finished above 300 in that league, which which was crazy because I thought it was like a hitter's league. Um and the parks were definitely the ba the parks were definitely hitters parks um, for the most part, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, going into this next uh, 
this next league where the, these pitchers are elite, um, that thirty-five uh, percent could easily turn into fifty or something crazy if I don't make some changes. Um, well, so that's that's the biggest thing. Yeah, I was talking about it with you the other day about how good the pitching is in uh, high A ball in the Florida State League with the Marlins alone. I mean, they've had just they had just such an exciting rotation of, of guys with Edward Cabrera and Braxton Garrett and uh, Trevor Rogers, just three guys. It's a three-headed monster that <laughs> there's no escaping. And they all had, you know, crazy K rates and striking out about 12 to 13 batters per nine innings. So, like, if you're running into teams like that, it's three straight games in a series. You're not avoiding uh, an ace-caliber guy. So that's the crazy thing. I think you're going to start uh, appreciating singles a little bit more, which is <laughs> probably a good thing for you. But I want to talk about now – getting to where you are now. You know, most people would expect that you were like this baseball kid out of the womb and you just loved it from the get-go. And it really isn't the case. Your journey to baseball and through baseball is pretty unique. And your dad's is too. I mean, your dad wasn't even a baseball guy through and through his entire life. And he ended up pretty late and deciding to play baseball. I had him on the podcast about a year ago too. And, and he told that story. Yours is pretty unique because you had a father that was in the bigs growing, while you were growing up and you still weren't that into it. Uh, I, I think you were at one point into skateboarding, I'm pretty sure. And you had like the long hair on your forehead and all that stuff. But what was it like for you going into the clubhouse? Like, were you not, you didn't have that moment as a kid, like, man, I want to do this. Um, yeah, man, I think that moment didn't really come until late, like, you know, almost high school when, when baseball started to get serious as far as, um, school goes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, travel ball and all that, uh, whatever Cooperstown, I mean, I, I was never super into it. It was kind of just something to do. Um, and it wasn't like my dad was like, oh, you're playing this year. Like you're, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. He'd always be like, you want, you want to play? And I'll be like, uh, be like, yeah, sure. It was kind of more like a, yeah, I'll play, you know, not like a hell yeah. Like love this sport. Like this is my life. Nothing like that. You know, it was just kind of like something to do. And, uh, I always liked it. You know, I think that was where it stopped was like, it was just like something I like to do like a hobby almost until, uh, until probably until ninth grade. Um, when I started to take it more seriously and, and the skateboard kind of <laughs> fell out of my life. <laughs> That was a, that was like a, a middle school. That was like a three year peak phase from like fifth grade to eighth grade where I was just uh, nonstop with that stuff. Yeah. So the skateboarding phase came with like the skateboarder's hair and you have a pretty funny story about being in the clubhouse with that haircut when your dad was on the Cincinnati Reds and uh, I'll let you tell it, but somebody offered to cut that hair for you. What's the story there? Yeah, I've actually heard it a couple times recently. My dad loves telling everyone he can about that. Um, so I've heard it like two times the past month alone, just r randomly. Um, I think I think it's because my my hair is now starting to get long again, and he's like, and people will comment on it. He's like, "Oh, you know, it's a funny story about long hair," and then I'll just go right into it. But um, yeah, it was, he was with the Reds in '07, um, so I was ten, so I was just starting to just grew out the flow. You know, was decked out in, in skate gear. Um, in the cargo shorts and whatever it was. Um, and we were, we spent the summer in Cincinnati. So I would get up to the field, uh, you know, every now and then and shag VP and whatever, go in the clubhouse. Um, and then it was actually Adam Dunn was the, uh, the first guy that made a comment. I was just sitting in the clubhouse. Um, and he was, he was just like, uh, you know, he's big, big dude, big country dude too. He was just like, Hey man, you got to cut that hair. That, that's too long. And he kind of just like barked at me. And I was just like this wide eyed 10 year old kid. And I just like kind of shook my head. You know, I was like, I was like frightened. Cause at this point, you know, if you're, if you're a skateboarder, if you know the community, your hair is your life. It's kind of like, this is your image. You know, it, it's how people know that guy skates. He's got the flow. It's like, it's like, it's like hair and lacrosse players. Now, you know, the flow is everything. Um, so I was like, no shot, man, it's not happening. And he, and he's like, he's like, I'll give you, a thousand dollars if you let me cut that hair right now and he had like i he had his hair clippers and he had like his razor and everything right in his locker i guess he cuts his own hair and uh and then griffey was like a few lockers down and uh and he heard it he's like yeah you know i'll, I'll go in on that with you uh so it's two thousand dollars if you let us cut your hair right now and i didn't i, I didn't consider it it was not even a thought i was like no <laughs> shot get him away from my hair get him away from my head this is not happening and 
my dad was like, I don't know. I don't think he really tried to like reason with me. He was just like, he looked at him. He was just like, yeah, guys, it's not going to happen. Cause he knew that like, this is like, I was deep into the phase at that point where I was like, this is just like who I am. And like, there's no price. And I mean, you're 10 years old. But if, if, if I got that offer today, I'd probably do it in a heartbeat because $2,000 means a lot more when you're 22 than, than when you're 10, you know, I, I don't think I realized. Also, I didn't realize these two guys that were asking me like with a thousand career homers combined, <laughs> like if they asked me anything, I'd do it, whatever they say. That's what I said. I, I was thinking the same thing. I think I would let Ken Griffey shave my head for free. Uh, I, literally right above me right now is a signed Griffey jersey on my wall from, uh, from his Mariners days, one of my favorite all-time players. But that story always blows my mind because – I, yeah, how do you expect a ten year old to understand like the the gravity of two thousand dollars? But yeah, that's what I, I tell just, my dad. But he still he still gives me shit for it. Today. You can't take away from the story. But that so so you're in the clubhouse then. Obviously, you're turning down haircuts uh, from Hall of Famers, and you're not at that moment like I want to play baseball. You're still pretty set on the on the skateboarding. And it wasn't until freshman year of high school where you start to come around and that's, that's finally when you realize you wanted to play baseball. So before that you were just going through the motions, like going in the clubhouse didn't do it for you. Yeah, no, not really. You know, I didn't, cause I didn't, I didn't watch it. I, mean, I watch it way more now than, than I did ever when I was, you know, 10 to 10 to 13. I never really watched. I mean, I'd watch my dad's games and obviously, but um, I didn't watch it like in my free time. I mean, I wasn't a fan like that. So all these superstars that I was around, weren't really superstars in my mind because I just I knew their name I knew they're a big deal obviously you know it's a big league player but um as far as like the emotional connection that like these kids have to these players nowadays um I never had that just because I I didn't uh didn't watch you know didn't watch enough to to have that so um they were just people to me and I I wasn't uh wasn't super starstruck and um didn't really uh, give it a second thought what if Tony Hawk had come into that clubhouse well, Tony Hawk was a little not not my type of skater, you know. Oh, okay. But uh, but my for bad. sure that would have garnered more more attention from me at that time, <laughs> uh, which is weird to think about now. <laughs> so fast forward, you play you play at high school, you play at Pinecrest uh, in Fort Lauderdale. Um, you, you do pretty well. You, you, freshman year, you, you start doing well, and then you really break out your your junior year. Um, you start getting some college offers, but you, you didn't get a ton of looks. You got looks, right? But like really good looks though you got like wait was it wake forest duke rice uh a few others but you didn't really get those florida schools right and you end up taking a visit to rice and you were set on going there right yeah yeah so i was i was a bit later like this was uh august of going into senior year so all my buddies that i played with you know uh from um you know, travel ball, they're all committed. You know, they're at this point, you know, the summer before senior year is pretty much um, your big summer. And I played well, but I think I was just like, I was such a late bloomer. So like I was getting late. I was a late addition to like a lot of these guys lists of like people to look at. Um, and a lot of those guys recruiting classes were already done. You know, they're finished. They, 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 recruiting goes back earlier and earlier nowadays. And so now they're, you know, their recruiting cl- class for sophomores in high school is already filled as far as Duke goes. You know, it's, that's how it goes. But so I was super late. So I was, um, I was really itching to just, you know, put that, put that committed thing in the bio on Twitter and, <laughs> tweet, and, and get that tweet out that like everyone's going to favorite and retweet um, and just kind of get it finished. Cause there's a lot of anxiety that comes with it. And I don't think I, I didn't really consider that, you know, this is going to be three years, four years of your life. So you should probably give it some real thought. And we got the offer from rice and I was just like, that's it. It's over. I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to tweet it out right now. Um, and I was pumped because I mean, Rice is, it was great. It's a good school. Um, campus was, uh, all right. You know, it was really small. It's just really small. Um, we walked the whole thing in like 45. Um, but I mean, it's, you know, it's a very good program. A lot of college world series, uh, appearances. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't want to consider, you know, the, the North Carolina trip that we were supposed to make, uh, the next couple of days. And my parents kind of forced me to, they're like, now, like, you know, you already, I don't think, I don't know if I agreed to it, but it was like in the works and they're like, you're going to follow through with this. You got to go see your options. And I was pretty pissed about that because I just wanted to be done and tell all my boys. Um, but yeah, so we, they, they forced me to go and, uh, you know, went to Duke, did the whole tour and it was really well done. And uh, you just couldn't beat it. You couldn't beat uh, how everything, you know, fell into place and uh, 
how the campus looked and, and everything about it. And so you were one game from the College World Series, uh, a pretty incredible run all the way through, and you end up falling to Texas Tech, right? And that, that was a crazy series in itself. You guys weren't expected to beat Georgia. You do. You come back. You weren't even expected to make it to Georgia. You were losing to Campbell, right? By like, what were you down? Almost eight runs, seven runs, and with only six outs to go. I'm trying to remember, but it was something crazy to the point where I turned it off. I stopped watching. I went to the grocery store. You guys had a rain delay, right? And can you talk Dude, about yeah. that? That just starting from there. Take take me through that and that miracle comeback, and then. That whole, just that whole run was just an incredible stretch because you end up getting drafted along that run too. And uh, what was that whole like two week span like? Yeah, man, that was uh, the Campbell game. You know, I'll never forget that. We had that rain delay and um, we were down. I think it wasn't super, it wasn't like crazy, like nine, eight or nine. It was like, I think maybe six to one, like the seventh. You know, this, this starter they had was cruising. He's a really good, really good pitcher. And against, you know, Campbell was a solid and, you know, they, they always could hit really well and, they had this one starter that they kind of rode, and, and he, he pitched really well that day. Um, we had, yeah, we had this long rain delay, and we went kind of in the cages, and we were just sitting around, and we were, the energy in there was just, you know, it was like a funeral. It was so dead, and it wasn't like, uh, there was no kind of movie-like moment where someone got up and was like, all right, like, we're going to get, like, we were, we had almost given up, you know? As bad as it sounds, we were just kind of like, we were reminiscing upon the year and, and, and everything that went down and just kind of like, this is, might be our last game together and all this stuff. And, um, and there wasn't really any shift in the energy where it was like, all right, like, let's go, let's go uh, beat these guys or come back. It was kind of just like, we started playing again and we were just like, we're going to, you know, we're going to, the, these are our last, could be our last at bats or whenever you get up in the lineup. Uh, so let's just make something of it. You know, let's just, uh, let's just, uh, make our last game, you know, something that we fought for, you know, and then we didn't just roll over, but there was no big speech from anyone. Um, and we had great leadership, but it was just kind of like, um, the mood in there was just, you couldn't overcome it. Um, and then just, you know, it happened so quick. It was just like, we got three or four guys on right off, right out, right out of the gate. Um, and we scored a few and then we scored a few the next inning. And then it came down to the ninth and, uh, that kid, Chris Crabtree, this bodybuilder freshman, um, came up and he had like 10 at bats in the year and the bases clearing double, I think gave us the lead in that ninth inning. And then we ended up beating them by like five or six. We scored like eight runs in that ninth. It was crazy. And then you move on to Georgia and you guys lose the first one, right? And then you win two in a row and you went off in that series. I think you, would you have three home runs in that series? Well, um, well, I'm trying to think. No. Yeah. So we, it was, it was double elimination. So we actually, we lost the first game to Troy. And then we, we, we won out after that. We beat Campbell, and then we beat we played Troy again, beat them pretty easily, and then we had to beat Georgia twice. We won four in a row after losing that first one. Um, Crazy. And, uh, yeah, and we, we got to Georgia, and by that time, you know, the momentum had kind of completely shifted. You know, we went from losing to two crappy teams almost, and then we kind of crushed Troy, I think, in that second game. And then, uh, yeah, and then we got to UGA, and it was just kind of uh, all gas, no breaks at that point. We were just, we were like, let's do it. And you, you went off in the game, like leading up to the draft. Yeah, I think you hit, did you hit two home runs that game, right? Right before the draft. And then you guys win the game and then you go to watch the draft because several of your teammates, including yourself, were ready to get drafted, right? Yeah, it was, uh, it was crazy. It was, um, we, we, uh. Yeah, we had we had a doubleheader, so we had we had to play Georgia twice that day. We had the first game at like twelve or one or something like that. Beat them. We had like an hour to just like eat something, and then we play again. Um, so we won the first game. Like uh, it wasn't super close. It was like I think we were tied in the seventh. Then we ended up going ahead. Um, yeah, and then the second game was um, by the time we got it was like five to four, and then um, it was pretty close most of the way through. And then we ended up going up eight to four, I think in the eighth or ninth. And then I mean, yeah, it was just what a rush of emotions come from going, you know, we got that win. And then that was at like, you know, we, the game finished up at like seven or eight or something like that. And then the draft was starting, you know, like, right. The picks had already kind of started coming in, I think as, as we were finishing up the celebration. Um, and I knew, I knew like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't gonna be a top 10, you know, I was talking to my agent. He was like, we can expect between these kind of picks here. And so we had time to go back to the hotel. And then, yeah, we went to a mellow mushroom across the street. 
you know, the whole t- yeah. whole team would kind of ended up rolling in around. Uh, you know, coach was cool about it because it was like eleven at this point. It was getting to like the pick forty or forty five, and it was like eleven thirty. So like curfew was was passed for sure. But he was like, you know, everyone kind of get over there and let's just uh, let's just like have a good time, you know, at this mellow mushroom and see what happens. So it was it was unbelievable. And so you went off the board. Was there anywhere you were like hoping to go? Uh, and you ended up going, I think, right one pick before the Marlins, ironically. But was there anywhere you were hoping to get drafted or was it just kind of take me as soon as possible? I can't wait to hear my name called. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think I had anything in mind. I just like, you know, definitely like a big, a big city, you know, a big market would be really cool. And, um, Toronto, I think fit the bill, you know, it's, it's a, it's a baseball team for a whole country, which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, the only, the only one like that. So, um, and I, you know, everything I've heard, I've never been, but, um, Toronto just be unbelievable as far as the city goes. So, yeah, I mean, it, there was no disappointments there. I mean, it was everything I could have hoped for and, um, very, very cool to get that text. And then you watch everybody else, all your other teammates go off the board. What was that like experience? Like you're riding the high of winning, uh, beating Georgia and then, uh, almost like a fifth of your team is now getting drafted uh, pretty high and now seeing an opportunity to play professional baseball. Yeah, it was awesome. Cause it was, it was, we had that long, we had to drive back uh, the next day and then we drive back to Duke to get, you know, in a week before uh, Texas tech. So on the drive, you know, the, the draft had started from round three the next day. And then Heron, you know, Heron goes uh, in the third round to the Cubs. We were at a gas station rest stop. Um, and I see like, we're all just, you know, everyone was following it, but like he didn't, uh, Heron didn't really know exactly what was, you know, he didn't know he was going to take him or whatever. Um, and we were just like, everyone kind of gathering around him and like hugging. And I was like in the bathroom, I got out and Aaron's and everyone's like, yo, Jimmy went to the Cubs, which is awesome. Cause the Cubs are, you know, they're just a legendary franchise. Um, and now of course he's with the Rockies now he got traded, but, um, yeah, he was crazy pumped. I think he was a little teary eyed. I don't know if you'd admit it, but, um, it was so cool. And then over the course of the next couple of days, you know, that day too, we had a couple guys, you know, um, trying to think who went next. Um, I think next was like 10th or 11th, maybe Cone and then Proctor. Yeah. Cone and, and Proctor went pretty close. Stallings together. and then, yeah. Yeah, the Stallings few other guys. and then Jack. DeCaster. Like, DeCaster went like 12th or 13th. Yeah, him and him and Proctor went both to the Tigers. Crazy. So I was so like many right guys. back to back, so. And then Jack was probably the craziest one because he was like, you know, he just wanted to play. You know, the signing bonus wasn't a question. You know, he didn't care about it. it was his last year, you know, for Duke. He didn't redshirt, so he was a senior. And um, he was kind of getting – like he was starting to sweat a little bit. We were in practice, you know, when he found out. And he was starting to, like, kind of get – he kept checking. And he finally got the call. Like, he just broke down, man. He was so happy. Yeah, um, Jack, Jack like, Oboski, right? Yeah, pitcher yeah. For, the, for the Rays organization. Yeah, you got the call. He told me in the middle of practice – with his phone in his pocket. I think he actually missed the call, which is crazy. Uh, and then that's just the craziest story too, where he turned a school bus into an RV because we talked about the lack of signing bonus there, uh, which is just a crazy story for you guys to all have that and go through it together, which is unbelievable. What was it like having your dad through that process too? Because most of these guys, most of your teammates didn't have a dad that played professional baseball. I know your dad had a very different draft experience having gone like, one of the, like around that I don't think even exists anymore. Uh, but for you now, a blue chipper, what advice was he able to give you in, in terms of just how to handle everything and how to handle yourself? Because I mean, your dad is known as one of the most pros pros uh, in the last 20 years around the game and highly respected. And uh, how much does he teach you off the field stuff and just how to, how to conduct yourself? It's definitely more than I learned just from watching, you know, him and, and hearing guys talk about, uh, cause you know, you know, my dad pretty well and he's not like, he's not a super vocal guy. Um, so to speak, you know, he doesn't do, uh, he just doesn't, he's not a big, he's more of a lead with how you act kind of guy, I think, than, than more like a, uh, big monologuer or big talker. Um, and I think we're different in that way, you know, cause I'm, I'm more of a talker and, uh, um, but I think just, you know, I get guys coming up to me all the time. You know, I had, I had a random guy at our last series in Lansing. He was the uh, – I think he ended up being the general manager for the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, and he was a clubby for the Marlins in, like, 1997 or something like that. And this guy came up to me in the dugout, and he was, like, shook my hand, and I had no idea who he was. And he's like, hey, man, like, you don't – know. He, didn't, he wouldn't even tell me his name. He was like, hey, man, like, 
Um, you don't know me. Your dad probably, you know, wouldn't remember me. But uh, I just wanted to say, you know, how great he treated like the clubbies and when, when we were in in Florida with him, and and he was always the, the coolest guy um, and treated us like we were, you know, part of the team. And I just wanted to say that. And I was like, "What's your name, man? Like, let me tell him." Uh, that you said something he's like he wouldn't remember me and he's like i was like no really and he's like yeah and it's all good man i just wanted to say what's up um so just stuff like that man just like being um as respectful as you can be to like people that you know you never know um what's gonna happen or uh what's what they're gonna end up as and um just you know being being as professional as you can be at all times and for you now moving forward you got uh hopefully now high A ball moving up to double A and your hope to just get to the bigs in the next couple years, uh, watching your dad in the bigs now when you can reflect back. Cause I know at the time you weren't really thinking about it, but reflecting back now, is there anything you took away from watching him at the time and how he carried himself on the field that now you can apply to yourself almost in hindsight, since you were you were so young when he was playing, it's hard to really at the time, be able to appreciate the little things that he did uh, but now that you're moving forward and can look back on it what what kind of things are you trying to take away from what he did obviously you're two very different kinds of players yeah yeah for sure i think uh i mean the biggest thing the most impressive thing is just uh mr consistency you know i think that's that's such an underrated uh such an underrated tool that, that someone can have is just being the same guy every day. Cause it's really hard, you know, especially with all the ups and downs that come with a season and, and the, a baseball career in general. Um, but I think that was the biggest thing I saw just, you can look at it with his numbers. I mean, he never had a huge fluctuating season. It was always, you know, 270 to 290. It seemed like, um, uh, same, same kind of power output, same, you know, RBI output. Um, and he was always, you know, he never missed a big chunk of time really. Um, so I think the biggest thing is just kind of the longevity, you know, the, of, uh, of a career and, and the fact that, um, he was, he came to the field, you know, the same, same guy every day. And that's something that he tells me too, is just, um, the season can get so, you know, drag on so long and, and gets hard at sometimes, but, um, the, the best thing you can do is just, uh, show up to the field every day, kind of just ready to work, you know, happy to be there. And, and if you're still having fun doing it, then, um, you know, your life's pretty good. So, uh, that's probably the biggest uh the biggest takeaway and before i let you go here i want your favorite sports or your favorite career baseball moment so far and then your favorite of your fathers so far i think i know what your yours is going to be for your fathers but i honestly have no idea what yours is for yourself i gotta say probably just that entire day of the the georgia regional (laughs) win you know you can't beat that just that that five hour period where uh you know we, we clinched the uh the win that no one thought we could and then, you know, you fast forward three more hours and then, you know, kind of my the next phase of my life starts with uh, with Pro Bowl. Um, so that was probably just the craziest rush of emotions, baseball related that, you know, I'll ever feel uh, I'll ever feel. And. Um, I mean, da- yeah, dad's dad's greatest moment as probably. Um, I would say I would say there's two. I would say individually um, the all star game Homer was probably at the top, one of the top of his list. I don't think he'd say that because it's, it's pretty, um, you know, individual, individualistic. It was just him, you know, representing the Marlins and he got the one pinch hit at bat and ended up winning the MVP, which was, which was awesome. Um, uh, but I think probably for him, uh, the Oh three, Oh three run, the postseason run where, so uh, we were just watching the highlights from that, uh, the other night, uh, the, punch, the, the, the throw to pudge. That's gotta be, that's gotta be all time. Yeah, yeah, that too. I mean, we, that was on the that was on the on the uh, on the on the highlight reel, obviously, and um, that was you know still still smiles about that entire play and Pudge with the with the legendary reaction to that, um, and just uh, I think beating the Yankees was the biggest thing. You know, it was the it was this David versus Goliath story here, and um, he never lets me forget that that they beat the Yankees at home to win the World Series. Well, that's next for you. You're going to have to beat the Yankees quite a bit in the coming years. So uh, hopefully it'll be pretty soon. And uh, appreciate you coming on, Griff. We're going to do this more. We got to do this again because there's so many questions I didn't even get to you know, get to with you within the hour. But we'll do this again soon because I got a lot more questions to grill you with. We didn't even let this one get too personal this time. You got lucky. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, 
off season uh, off season schedules is pretty flexible. Um, so you know, I'm always around and definitely down to to get get, get personal with it next time. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Keep working on those strikeouts, Griff. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Take-